Welcome to the Experience Darden Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to feature a conversation I recently recorded with Joey Burton. Joey is Executive Director for Darden's Institute for Business in Society, or IBIS, and he and I recently sat down to talk a little bit more about his background, what brought him to Darden, uh, the work that IBIS does and the impact that it has on the classroom, as well as his advice for students who are considering a Darden MBA. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Joey Burton. Joey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. All right. So start all these conversations the same uh, way by asking our guests uh, their background. So tell us a little bit more about you. So I uh, have a couple of master's degrees, one in uh uh, public policy and one in business from one of our competitor schools, actually. Um, I came from Chicago Booth. I worked there for about 14 years and um, about three years ago, almost exactly, I arrived here at Darden. Um, my research background is in labor economics and in demography, um, a little bit in health economics. Um, but uh, I came here to to sort of do some research. I mean, I tell that story a few different ways, but... Yeah, so what's your actual role here at Darden? My actual role is the executive director of IBIS, which is the Institute for Business and Society. It was founded about eight years ago um, to sort of be an umbrella for a whole bunch of different um, ideas and activities around this idea that business is a social institution with a social responsibility, with the ability to do good and with this like responsibility to do good um, with its resources. Um, that's not the same as CSR necessarily as co- corporate social responsibility, this sort of buzzword. Um, it's about this sort of integrated approach to the way that business interacts with its social surroundings with its environment and with um, its suppliers and with its clients and with its employees. Um, It's the idea that the business owners are the business and its stakeholders are people that the business ought to take care of, um, including, you know, shareholders and other traditional stakeholders, but also expanding what that can mean. So that's sort of why IBIS came into being. And I came here with very little experience in that area. Um, I came from uh, a research center that was sort of a general purpose research center in economics, Um, but with some questions about um, sort of the philosophy of business and the philosophy of um, economics um, that I felt were sort of congenial here at Darton. Is that what attracted you to the role? Oh, my gosh. There was a lot that attracted me here. Um, I I tell this story a couple of different ways. And one of the ways that I tell it is that I got here and I got to talk to Ed Freeman. Um, If you Google Darden, his picture comes up, right? And and I've never heard him quoted anything but disfavorably. And so I got here and here I got to talk to him and ask him my questions. And it turns out we have like the same... Uh, nerdy opinions about like Ronald Coe's the great economist from the University of Chicago. And so um, we got talking about how uh, about that and we got talking about th- this idea of business and firms as social institutions and as drivers of of sort of social difference. Um, and um, it, it, and I couldn't imagine not working with him. It was it was sort of that um, exciting to me. I met Mary Margaret Frank. Um, who is very persuasive. I met Greg Fairchild um, during that whole process. And I felt like the people here were the people I wanted to work with. I met the head of our Darden's fundraising team, um, 
Kara Mullins, and I felt like she was a partner I could I could work with. And not only that, I felt like I'd known these people forever. Um, and so there there's this um, I don't know. There's just this notable uh, sort of personal aspect to Darden, where the students and the faculty bring their whole selves to work that I had never experienced before. Um, and it was, frankly, really difficult for me to get used to. Um, it actually made it so that I had to be a better manager um, because uh, everybody's whole self comes to work. Um, and, uh, and I think that's really appealing in a lot of ways, but it, it, it's hard. It's hard work um, to work with real people. Um, not that the people I've worked with in the past aren't real. It's just that we weren't really expected to bring our whole life to work. Um, but here I get that opportunity. So that's one of the ways I think about why I came here. The other reason is that I get to deal with these ideas that are, have such great currency right now. Um, business and society is an idea that's sort of taking off. It's been around for a long time, but the idea of business as a social institution is something that the business roundtable just seems to have come alive to recently that, um, as early as yesterday, um, the world economic forum released a statement on their commitment to these principles of business and society, these, uh, very similar principles to the business roundtable. Um, and so these ideas have great currency. And so that gives us some, I think, uh, not only gives the Institute some interest for people outside of this place, but I think it highlights something that's been going on probably since the inception of the University of Virginia, um, but certainly has been going on at Darden for at least 30 years, um, where we sort of believe that business can do some good um, and that business is not a good institution or a bad institution. It's a human institution. And so um, it has its problems and it has its strengths, um, but that it is sort of the best what Ed calls the best metaphor for uh, human productivity that we have. And, um, and I think it would be a shame to lose that. And as I look around, I think that uh, at that, that sort of current events, I think that part of what drives this interest in business as a social institution is that people feel like it's failed them. Um, and they're casting around looking for different systems or different uh, metaphors for, to organize their productivity. Um, some of them have turned against capitalism entirely. Um, some people question the value, I think, of an MBA, of a business degree. Why are we studying business? Why do we need management training? Well, I think it's, you know, as a human institution, I think it learns. Um, I think business learns. And I think that we learn as business leaders. We learn. And if we didn't think that was teachable, I don't think any of us would be here. Um, and I, and I think that businesses can learn and unlearn, in fact, um, a lot about what makes business better. And, um, and so that's one of the reasons I came was because this is a place that's so open to that, um, top to bottom. There's no controversy when they want to open a course that sounds non-traditional, when they want to teach music or they want to teach business and leadership through the arts or when they want to teach it through the humanities in some other way. There's a literature class at Darden. It's, I mean, it's astonishing to people outside of this place that we teach a theater class um, and that that somehow conveys business skills. Um, it sounds almost like magic. Um, 
And it is a little bit magic. I, I, people at Darden talk kind of very openly about the magic of the Darden classroom. And I was obviously very skeptical until I saw it. Um, I was sitting with a group of entrepreneurs um, from the Baltimore area in a, in a class with Ed and uh, Bobby Parmar. And they were teaching through theater games, leadership. And I thought, this can't be going on. I don't even understand its connection to leadership. All I know is it's kind of embarrassing and um, that I'm not having that much fun. And I'm not sure what it is I'm learning. Um, we were about three quarters into this class. And I looked at these entrepreneurs and they are turning around and looking at each other. And Ed goes, okay, so did you get that? And all of them are turning to each other and nodding and going, we got it. And and. It made sense to them. One of them said, this is how my every day is, is this sort of improv. And they understood the connection of these sort of ideas from the humanities to what they were doing every day in business. And so I think we are more interdisciplinary somehow at both the University of Virginia, which I think really supports this idea of interdisciplinarity, as well as just at Darden, we're just more interdisciplinary and more open to other methodologies, sort of uh, pedagogies, ways of training, ways of thinking about how we teach, and then just the ideas behind that teaching than many of our peer schools would be. Um, and, you know, and, and I've experienced some of how they see the world through my interactions with my peers at other schools. And um, a lot of what's controversial there about business and society just doesn't even raise eyebrows here. It's, it's comparatively easy um, to think about new ideas at, um, at the Darden School. Your point about um, classes is a really, really interesting one to me. We had Jean Lidka here on the podcast not mm -hmm. so long ago. She's a magician, right? She's amazing. Incredible. Um, just to even be able to sit with her for 40 minutes and just hear not only her story, but what she's passionate about and some of the work that she's doing. It's incredible. She was talking a lot about her class to Barcelona uh, that looks at architecture and painting and creativity, um, which obviously has a direct relationship to design thinking. But yeah. just hearing about students going to Barcelona and learning about Picasso and learning about Gaudi, uh, we'll say most of the podcast conversation had this sort of theme of creativity and, yeah. and the reason why you need to learn the fundamentals is you look at Picasso's career was a classically trained painter yeah. that ultimately became this great innovator, but you had to have the fundamentals first. Yeah. She, she worked that into a metaphor for the Darden curriculum. So, you know, you're, you are, in the, you know, you're in the hands of a, of, of a really talented person when they're able to make the connection between Darden's curriculum and Picasso's Picasso. career. Yeah. Um, so talk about some of the work that, that obviously Institute for Business and Society is doing right now. Uh, you mentioned that this is, that this is really, uh, a center that helps, you know, sort of faculty with research and with some of the questions that uh, they have and they're interested in. So what, what are some of the things that faculty are working on right now? Okay, so I'll preface that by saying Darden's a little weird. Um, my research colleagues at the Institute for Business and Society have mentioned this several times. Um, so I don't think I'm stealing this from them. Um, I think it's sort of just how we feel collectively about it. But it's a little weird. And it's weird because we've never been in an environment. We've all worked in other research environments. We've never been in an environment where a faculty member will come up to us and say, hey, I have this really great idea. And they'll explain this idea in so much detail. And I think this could be a case. And I think this could be a piece in a, a, a peer-reviewed journal. And I think this could change the way that people think about this particular business problem. 
And then they'll say, but I have zero substantive knowledge in that field. And so can you help me? And it's this curiosity across institutional and, and sort of disciplinary boundaries that I haven't experienced before. Um, Darden faculty are not used to staying in their lane um, intellectually. I think they feel like they can go outside. And so we want to facilitate that feeling. I had a conversation with Mary Margaret Frank in the hallway one time. And um, we were talking about her research in a paper that she had just submitted to a peer-reviewed journal, which for prospective students and alumni seems sort of arcane and sort of murky. And they're not sure what how that translates into value for them. I, I'll talk about that. But, but, uh, but it does. So we were talking about this. And... Um, she talked about how the Institute had changed her attitude towards her research in a way. And she said, look, I now feel free to ask a question. She said before, when I had to ask a question, she said, I would have to think about the cost of asking that question. And I would have to think, okay, well, if I ask this question, then that means I'm somehow responsible to find the answer. And I don't know where the resources are. And I'd have to coordinate that and figure that out. And so I didn't want to have the question in the first place, or I didn't feel free to have the question in the first place. And she has felt that because Darden has been very strategically creating these resources for faculty. She's felt sort of liberated, I think, to ask those questions um, that she's wanted to ask outside of her discipline or across disciplines. And I think that's awesome. And I, I hope that that's the way that our other faculty are feeling. We don't just deal with the faculty that you see on our website. We deal with all of them if we can. Um, and we try to help them ask these questions. So some of the things that they're working on right now, Mary Margaret, for example, is a great example. She's working on opportunity zones, which is squarely within her area of tax and regulation and so on. Opportunity zones are these zones that, the, that were, well, have a, have a sort of complicated history, but they're a federally defined um, spatial entity. So they're an actual place within states um, that the federal government has defined as um, – uh, sort of tax, um, how would I describe it? Well, they, 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 there's a tax benefit to investment in those places. Um, they are very controversial. Um, they've been with us for about a year, and people have noticed that they're not producing immediate wealth. Um, or if they are, they were already sort of taking off beforehand. And so lots of people have gotten very exercised about this. I listened to an NPR podcast the other day where um, they feel like, you know, the, the, the callers felt like the, the country has been scammed by these. We don't have enough data to know that. Um, they might be a good idea. They might not. Mary Margaret has been able, um, with the help of some of our researchers, to find some really interesting complications that complicate every, everybody's story about, about opportunity zones and whether they're a really good idea um, or not. Um, and I will say this. Uh, opportunity zones were defined at the state level and then rolled up to the to – the, um, to the federal government as part of the new tax law from last year. Um, and Darden actually had a, quite a role, in fact, in defining where, defining where Virginia's um, opportunity zones were located um, through the Batten Institute. Um, some of their researchers um, actually produced the, the data analysis that led to the selection or that was used as part of the selection for those um, those opportunity zones. So that's a way that I think we're dealing with a very relevant issue um, and one that's hugely controversial in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, at the federal level in, in ways that I think are innovative, in ways that I think um, 
it's helpful and it's good that Mary Margaret has that kind of depth in tax. And it's also good that she's, you know, receiving help from a sociologist who can help her understand the placeness of that problem, the sort of the demography of that prob of, of, of opportunity zones. Why is it that people don't feel the immediate effects of investment in their local area? Um, should we expect that? Um, one of our sociologists has sort of made this point that, well, actually if, if, if we're building something at a community level, you should expect it to go slow. Immediate effects might mean that the benefits are accruing to people outside the community and not inside the community. If we saw a really slow trajectory, though, a slow build in in these opportunity zones, that might indicate that something better is going on for that community um, in partnership with business. And I think that's great. I love that our faculty are so not just open to their discipline of economics or tax or whatever it is, but are open to this idea of business, that their research has something to do with business. And if it doesn't have to do with business, they're not actually that interested. They don't just write economics papers. They write business papers. And I think that's kind of unique. Um, another area where we're, we're working with faculty, uh, uh, Anton Kornick is an economist here at UVA and he has, um, he spent some of his time here at Darden. Um, fascinating economist because he is so pessimistic about the future of work. Um, I think a lot of people believe that we'll reach some sort of singularity um, with computers, but he hasn't. Um, but he's sort of internalized that and tried to figure out what that has to do with whether our jobs will be automated and not just whether, but when. And then what does that mean for us is the key question, but it's a question that he felt constrained by his discipline of economics to answer. He didn't, he didn't feel like economics was providing the answer about what will happen. Um, it was simply predicting that it will happen. And so he needed some help outside from outside of his discipline. And so at the Institute, we are able to sort of adjoin all of these various disciplines, um, and to uh, sort of help figure out a research plan for answering this question about what will we all be doing in 2025, or he says at the very latest 2035, when our jobs are automated. Um, humans need work. And this isn't an idea that without psychology or without sociology that an economist can readily deal with, he felt. And um, and so I thought that was, it's a really interesting way that, that, that the University of Virginia and Darden are sort of enhancing these opportunities to think across disciplinary boundaries and where I think the Institute is effective in helping them do that. Um, the answers aren't good by the way, like, <laughs> and the less said, probably the better at this juncture. It's, it's very early days in that research, but, um, we're really excited about it. And I think it's something that will, it's an idea that I think will be in our classrooms for a while. Um, we have in the past thought a lot about resilience and what creates resilient communities. Um, so Greg Fairchild has quite a bit of research in that area, especially in rural um, Virginia. He created a data set um, jointly with, um, with, uh, with partners at the Virginia Community Capital Bank um, that sort of describes the economic conditions and also the sort of businesses that are functioning in, in, uh, in sort of underserved rural communities in, in Virginia. And his whole point was to figure out what makes certain businesses resilient in those areas to a lot of what's happened since the 1970s when they've, these communities have sort of been gutted. 
and what makes some businesses fail in those areas. Um, Morella Hernandez and Jared Harris have a paper that came out of those data um, that is an academic paper, peer-reviewed and so on. But I think what's interesting are the cases that that Greg wrote with students um, about some of those businesses. And so these businesses are, I mean, it's just awful. So not only have they never seen a time in their living memory when they haven't been experiencing a recession, right? They haven't had economic growth in their area. They didn't experience multiple recoveries the way that everybody else did. It, uh, not only did they experience sort of a brain drain where their best and brightest just left. Um, not only did they experience some of these other things, these other sort of problems that we associate with rural areas in the United States where um, farms have had to shut down or family farming is no longer economically viable and that, again, devastating to these communities. But they also, these businesses had fires or had um, just horrible hardships that they had to, to encounter. But these business leaders believe themselves to be keeping their entire community together. And so they're like, well, look, like my employees are not just my employees. They're the same people that I go to church with and my kids go to school with them. And I don't know, I gave them a car loan so that they could get to work. And like their success is really important to me because if they're not successful, they don't come to work and then I can't run my business and so on. And they see it all as connected. I mean, that's stakeholder theory. That's this idea that, that Darden built its sort of reputation on. That's the power of purpose. That's, that's this, um, I mean, if that's not finding your why, I don't know what is. These, these leaders know what their why is. Their why is to keep their community together. Um, and so Greg worked for a long time on that research. I think an outgrowth of that interest has been his interest, um, his recent interest in, and, and publication success in, uh, in minority depository institutions. These are minority-owned community banks. Um, some of them are chains. Some of them are just a single bank in a community um, owned by um, uh, minority owners. And um, there is a mythology about uh, minority depository institutions that they're just not efficient or that they're somehow deficient compared to a traditional bank. And um, he is working with researchers at the Institute to demonstrate with data and using a variety of different methods that that's just not true. And that in many ways that you, where you might, if you buy, if you bought into that mythology, expect, um, where, where, where you would expect certain banks to fail and other banks not to fail because you had bought into this sort of prejudice. Um, what he shows us is that, that, you actually should be quite confident putting your money or taking out a business loan, a small business loan with a, with a minority depository institution versus another bank. Um, other banks actually fail more. Um, it's early days again in that research, but that seems to be the upshot. And so I don't, I don't want to steal his thunder by, by reporting results that aren't reported yet. But, um, but again, it's sort of exciting, I think, to be involved in the creation of these new ideas and these ideas with social relevance. I think a lot of our competitor schools have institutes like the Institute for Business and Society, but they are there to organize and facilitate student activism. And I think the difference between, um, Darden and some of its competitors in that regard is that we just want to provide the ideas for your activism. We want to provide the, the tools to help you think about your activism, the ethics courses, which I assume we'll talk about at some point, um, 
the ethics courses that will help you decide what you believe and what your values are. And then the ethics courses that will help you decide that once you know what you value and once you know what you think is right, um, how do you act on that? Uh, one of our most fascinating faculty is, uh, is a professor of practice, Mary Gentili, who um, came to us a few years ago around the same time I did um, and is helping students discover not what they think is right, but their ability to act on what they already know is right. Um, and it's this powerful idea that you actually have a voice. You don't have to be a whistleblower. You can stop this activity from happening in the first place so that there doesn't have to be this terrible whistleblowing experience later. Um, you actually have power. Um, and how do you access that? How do you use that? And how do you believe that about yourself? And it turns out that just practicing, it turns out that just practicing, um, role-playing, in fact, um, doing the right thing helps you to do the right thing. Um, and, uh, again, like all good ideas, it seems so obvious, but it's, but it's, uh, it's an idea that's transformative. I, I could go on and on with in this vein of how are we helping the faculty and what awesome things are our faculty doing. But I do think that the fact that our, that our, our faculty care as much as they do about being in the classroom, that they always are looking for ways that their research life bleeds into their teaching life is unique among um, faculties that I've worked with. Um, most faculty don't see much connection between what they're teaching in a business classroom versus what's going on in in their office when they're sitting behind their computer. Um, people at Darden are constantly looking for those connections. And I don't think that's just because, uh, I don't think that's just because they have limited time and we're a small faculty. I think that's also because they actually care about solving problems and they know you have to solve them from many different points of view. There's this very practical, um, uh, focus here at, at Darden and I think also at UVA. And I think it's probably rooted in Jeffersonian democracy in some way. I had to learn what that meant when I first got here. Um, I don't know that it has anything anymore to do with like the yeoman farmer or whatever Jefferson said, but it does have to do with this idea of participatory democracy. Like we all are in it together. And, um, and that means that at, at every level or every sort of, uh, walk of society that, Everybody not only has roles to play, but everybody is responsible to one another. Um, and I don't know that ideas like stakeholder theory or ideas like um, uh, ideas about business as a social institution could have, could have arisen or gained as much currency um, anywhere else um, at any other business school. I think it happened here at University of Virginia because of that sort of that that founding idea about ourselves that we're in this together, that this is a participatory um, democracy and that business is an institution within that system and that business is a participatory institution and it participates. It needs to, it needs to have a voice outside of um, the voice it has with the shareholders. It needs to have a voice in the body politic. And um, yeah, so so one of the things that I think prospective students are drawn to about about Darden is the fact that the focus is on developing responsible leaders, mm -hmm. that ethics is a required yeah. part of the curriculum. Darden was obviously an early – By the way, that's shocking to people. Um, I was just at a conference a, a, a couple of weeks ago, and um, some of the people at our peer schools said, well, we, we've seen your ranking, that you're like number one uh, in CSR. Tell us how you got that. And I said, well, well we it's, it's very closely related to how much of – or how much we teach ethics and how we teach ethics and so on. And I tried to sort of 
not make them feel bad about that. Um, and then one of them looked at me in the face, incredulous and said, but not in the core, right? Not in the core. And I didn't know where to put the question because of course it's in the core. Of course, business ethics is in the core. Um, it's, it, it is core to what we do here. Um, and it's so much of how, how Darden is perceived in the world and in this market. Um, and it's, uh, so key to how, when I talk to our alumni, I'm always fascinated by how, as they look back over these long and successful careers, they think that the ethics training they received here was one of the most important things and the most transformative thing that happened to them while they were here for those two years. What do you see as the approach to ethical instruction here at, at Darden? You know, obviously there's obviously a lot of talk about the case method, but the faculty can bring different perspectives into the room as they're thinking about something like ethics. Obviously, a huge, hugely broad topic. Mm-hmm. And so stakeholder theory ar- arose out of ethics, right? It arises out of the ethics literature. It's this approach to like, what do you owe everybody in your organization? Is it just the shareholders that you owe something? Or do you, does, is, your, is it incumbent upon you to act on the behalf of and for the good of other people who have some connection to your to your business. So I think that's part of what ethics means here. I think, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that. Um, and so I think that's part of why ethics is different here too. Um, is because ethics kind of goes hand in hand with that view of business. Um, I will say this, that the, the Mary Gentile piece is also really helpful. Like this idea that we don't have to sit and tell each other what's right. We can sort of begin, well, we can trust you, you know, what's right. And so how do you, enact that um, is also really helpful. The students who come here, they want to make the world better. Like I just, I, I think that is sort of table stakes now here at, at Darton. Um, when you talk to our students, when you meet our students, you are meeting people who are socially engaged, who don't need, need me to lead an activist center. They want to know how to lead their own and how to use their careers as outgrowths of their ethics, outgrowths of their values. Um, if you just look at a really, uh, Ed goes around the world giving presentations to our, our, our alumni and friends, and even some prospective students will show up and you watch these prospective students eyes just kind of sort of fixate on him and light up because he's presenting them with these, what I think of as sort of easy cases, but, um, it's the first time they've had to think about some of these things in a business context. Um, their business experience has been sort of keep your head down and do your work. And here they are having their mind broadened when they're thinking about the ethical implications, the rights and the wrongs and the, and the sort of hows of what it is that they do and who is it affecting and what do they owe those people? Um, he presented in Tokyo the other day, uh, and I got to be there and it was awesome, but he, he, he presented in Tokyo the other day, a a very, very short case about self-driving cars and, how these algorithms make choices about who to kill when there's a, there's a child standing on over here in the road and there's an old woman standing in on the other side of the road and they both just ran out and how, which one does the car strike? Now these are terrible questions to have to ask and it obviously highly theoretical and hopefully never really happen. But ethicists think this way because they have to think about, they have to think about sort of, whose decision should that be? And are we comfortable leaving that up to an algorithm and the people who wrote it? And of course, are we comfortable that, that those people had different incentives or different commitments than, than, or different values than you, the person riding in that car have. 
And should you be the one making that decision or should you be leaving? And what, what are the ethics of you leaving that ethical decision up to a car um, and to these people who are removed from you both in time and space and have already made that decision for you? written script, right? And um, what responsibility do you have for that script? And so this is a way of thinking about this problem that hopefully will never happen, but they can internalize that in their business behavior. And they can think about, well, if I make this choice, or if I cede this authority to somebody else, what does it mean about my behavior? Or should I, should I make the choice? Um, and I think there may be various answers to that. And they might all be right. But I think... Um, and at different times or in different circumstances. But I think, I think uh, this idea that they get to come here and bring their whole self to this problem here at uh, the Darden School is really attractive to a lot of them. So obviously, Did that answer your question? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So Darden um, has a growing presence in the D.C. area, obviously a huge alumni base there. It's the mm-hmm. largest alumni base for the school. And they're excellent alumni. Like, we, so engaged. Absolutely. Um, we got a holiday party upcoming, which we yeah. get to see them. And obviously, many other th- other ways we get to see the alumni throughout throughout the year. I say this to someone who gets to work out of the Roslyn office. So um, what does that mean for IBIS to now have, you know, we've got a space there. We've got a growing presence, a growing physical presence, I should say, in, in the Washington, D.C. area. Yeah. We're still talking about what that will mean operationally for us. Um, I am very, very committed to this idea that at Darden, Research does not mean nerds sitting behind computers. Um, it means that, but it means a whole lot of other things, too. Um, that research happens in roundtables and it happens in uh, panel events and so on where we're generating hypotheses together. It happens in the classroom when faculty are talking to students and students have that idea that the faculty just think is really important or new and it makes them think about or approach their research differently. Um, the classroom can be a part of the research process. Everything can. And so as we think about what programs we want to do or where the areas where we want to innovate, um, DC is definitely going to be part of that. Um, we have had some presence in DC, um, with some success. Um, it's young, but, uh, one of the programs that I think has been really successful is this, um, is a program led by Mary Margaret Frank and, uh, uh, Maggie Morse, um, who works for the Institute. Um, they have taken eight Darden students, eight uh, Batten students, public policy, and eight law students um, every year for the past several years. And um, they have put them through basically two quarters of casework together, simulations together, um, simulating various social problems or various decisions that need to be made um, in a social context. And watching how they learn to interact with people with a completely different point of view. Um, they all have their biases about how people at the Darden School or people at the law school here at Virginia, people at the Batten School might behave. Um, and they may have to let go of some of those assumptions about how those people might behave. They may have to let go of some of those prejudices. Um, uh those schools also have have views about how Darden students solve problems. And these people don't agree, but they they will forever be on on teams together, especially if they're working in that D.C. market. And so this really prepares these people, I think, for real life in in a way that um, I think is is really helpful. So they have these speakers come in and talk to them about like, hey, so I'm the CEO of a major company or I am a lawyer um, for major corporate interests, or I am a lawyer in the government, or I am the, you know, we happen to have an alum who's um, 
the chief technology officer of the United States of America, right? So here's a decision I'm working on. Um, help me make that decision. And they get to think about that decision or they may formula, formally simula, simulate the decision-making process. Um, and so that program has been really active in D.C. and really helpful. The f when we first talked about it in D.C., Greg Fairchild mentioned that we had this program and that it had been running for a few years and it was very successful. Um, our older alumni in the D.C. area responded to it very differently than I had anticipated. I thought they were going to be like, oh, my poor young friends, that's so wonderful for you, or something like that. Um, their response was, why didn't you do this for us? Um, we got here to D.C., and everybody was a lawyer. Everybody was younger than we were. Nobody had business experience. They didn't know how we thought. We certainly didn't know how they thought. And we didn't know how to solve problems together. And so the whole beginning of my career had to be about that instead of hitting the ground running. And we got several of those comments. And I thought that was wonderful because I thought here we are filling this real gap where Mary Margaret had just sort of suspected that there's this gap and thought these people need to know how to think about, about being part of a multi-sector unit working together to solve one problem. Um, she had suspected that that was the case. And here we were right. Our alumni were giving us this feedback. So I was really gratified by that. I think, and I, I, I love the program. I can't say enough good about it. I, I think one of the, um, challenges would be scaling it. I would love to be able to scale it. We don't have a lot of time, um, to do that. Um, but I would love more people to have that opportunity to sort of work across, uh, institutional and career and job boundaries, um, and sort of expand their minds about what their work can mean. Um, I would love to do that. And so I, we're thinking of more ways that more people can sort of access that kind of experience. And by the way, I will say this, we are a research center and you've heard me talk heavily during this conversation about research, but that TSL program, I see it as an outgrowth of Mary Margaret's very solid and very, um, academic, for want of a better word, research in the area of public-private partnership um, and sort of hybrid financial schemes for getting social problems solved. Um, she has very active interests in that in her research, but here she is doing this very practical program with students. Um, and I think they feed each other. And I think that's a wonderfully unique thing about the Darden School is that we're sort of open to the research environment, including all of this and not just the work you do behind your computer. Well, Joey, I think so much of what you've shared today is um, of interest to our prospective students. Uh, the questions we get on the road, obviously, we talked about ethics. You talked about sort of, uh, social responsibility component of business, business not just as shareholder value but as mm -hmm. concern for stakeholders. It's been interesting to see these conversations bubble up, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation uh, and sort of the broader, broader conversation about business uh, now. Um, what would you want prospective students to know about, about Darden? You've hit on a couple different different themes here, but um, what would you want somebody listening to this podcast who's thinking about maybe coming here for an MBA to know about this place? I'd want them to know it's real. I'd want them to know that uh, that our focus on uh, business as a social institution permeates the place. Not everybody is aligned to the stakeholder perspective here. Like, of course, there's disagreement. Of course, there, you know, there are disciplinary boundaries. Um, but it's real that we cross them quite often and probably more than would be predicted in this environment. So I want them to know that's real. I would want them to know that the Darden curriculum is difficult and, um, 
that this is not an easy school because we think about softer things or things that um, have traditionally been thought of as softer. Ed likes to say that business gets harder when you manage for stakeholders, not easier. When you pull yourself, when you say, well, the data, whatever that means, the financial data or the, the, the number that you're working against to meet your, to meet your goals, um, whether that's a, 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 a number that describes sort of a financial situation or whether that describes some sort of quantity that you're, you're up against, whatever it is, um, the, whatever way you've been measuring your performance quantitatively, you, of course you have that data. But you also have these relationships that have to be taken care of. And how do you score yourself on that? Um, it just gets harder when you think more broadly about your role in the world um, and not just your role behind a desk. Um, and so they prepare you in all of those ways. Darden is kind of a grinder. Like I was really shocked by that when I got here. Um, it is a, like our students experience it as very rigorous. Um, they will be expected to work really hard. And the fact that, you know, we also think about Picasso um, rigorously um, enhances that, but it doesn't. It doesn't just make it better; it makes it harder. And so this is so believe it. I think that's what I think that's what I would say to them is that believe that this is really that place because it really is. It's in our DNA. Like this idea that purpose drives us is real, and I've been shocked by how real it is. But it's also a real school. Like this is real work, and they will be required to put in real time and real effort and real sort of intellectual power um, into their study here. I think also I would say one of the things that I'd, I'd want people to know here um, uh, is there's a there's a community here at Darden, and I apologize, like my voice just broke, but um, but uh, there's a community here at Darden that I I don't want to undersell. And that I also don't want to take lightly. Um, about a year after I arrived here, I had a family tragedy. And I would be lying if I didn't say that's the other way that I tell my Darden story. Um, but my wife very suddenly passed away in a gym class um, at a local gym. There were people from the Darden community who were at the gym in the class when it happened. There were people with me at the hospital when we went to the hospital afterwards. There were people with me all that night, all from the Darden community. They hardly knew me. Um, I think that would have happened at other places. Sure, it would have. But this is a small town, and it's a small place. And I think some of the pieces of that would have been unlikely elsewhere. But it was just interesting to me how natural it was and how it wasn't even that it was about me. It was about, well, we just, we are Darden, and we take care of each other. And um, the two years since that have been nothing but... um, uh, a continuation of that at whatever level I was ready for um, and have been um, nothing but um, uh, I guess have been sort of like this purest example to me of what of what stakeholder theory is that we take care of each other that we um, are responsible to each other that we um, that I have this responsibility now to them um, and that um, I am part of that and that it is incumbent on me to figure out how I pay that forward in some way to use a terrible cliche. But like, that's part of my Darden story. Like part of the, the reason I came here was because I felt like these people were people I had known forever and they had this commitment to these values that were important to me too. And, um, they were bringing those values to work. And, um, and then when this thing happens in your life and like you, like it it was just astonishing to me how automatically, they went back to those values, how core and bedrock those values were for them. 
And, um, I learned a lot watching it. I learned a lot experiencing, um, experiencing them enacting their values. Um, and so I don't know, I, I don't know that I, that I'm a lifer or that anyone can say they're a lifer at any job, but, um, but, but, uh, the Darden school is in my, it's in my DNA now. It's in my soul. It's in my, it's in my heart. And, um, and, uh, I, I love working with these faculty. Of course, I love working with their ideas and with their research. That's what drives me. Um, but I, I never want to sort of underappreciate also the sort of the personal, the first story I ever heard about Darden, um, was just after I had taken the job and I wasn't sure why I had just done it, why I was moving across the country to come to this place. And, um, a friend of mine introduced me to his boss at a party and he said, well, you need to meet my boss because if you're going to go work for Darden, like my boss is a Darden alum. And so I, I, I met his CEO and he said, Oh, I went to Darden. And he said, the thing that just sold me on it, he said, I, I walked out of the front doors of the Darden school and there across the way was the Blue Ridge Mountains, which meant nothing to me. I didn't know what the Blue Ridge Mountains were, were the Blue Ridge Mountains and the sun was hitting them in just such a way. And it was this crisp autumn morning. And he said, and it was just so spiritual. And I started to laugh and I was like, I don't, I don't know anybody in my past professional life that's ever spoken that way about, about anything, frankly. And, um, and, but I got here and there is this sense that there's this physical beauty around us. And then there's this history that we, they, we have, and there's this responsibility to that history and not just, not just to sort of let it guide us, but to think about the ways that it was wrong or the ways that we should make things better in the future because of that history. Um, there was a whole responsibility for our time here that I didn't under, that, that, that like had never been part of my career. Um, and that I wanted. And so I don't know, like Darden has been a wonderful place to be. And I think it's a wonderful choice, um, for a prospective student to make, especially if they want to work hard and they want to think about their place in this world and in the world that they want to exist or that, that they want to bring into being. Some of our listeners may be interested in, in listening. I mean, sorry, reading a little bit more, um, some of the articles or, you know, catching up on some of the, mm-hmm. the, the work that our, that our faculty are doing, uh, some of the stuff that you talked about here. Um, any place that they can find that or any, yeah, anywhere they can read? Um, so, I hope that some of our faculty have talked to you in the past about ideas to action. It's, uh, we've invested quite a bit in the last two years, um, in overhauling it and making it both more readable and, um, sort of, I think, I hope, um, more actionable. And I also hope more intellectual. Um, I think that, uh, a lot of the interaction that I have with prospective students is around things that they've read on that platform. And so it's a platform for uh, our faculty to put their, um, sort of digested thoughts, um, where they'll write the article for their peers and then put it in a journal somewhere. And then they will write the less technical version and and put it on ideas to action. And then if you're interested in that other article, it will link you out to the, to the more, to the more serious or more technical version of that. Um, it's also an article for us to link our prospective students and friends and alumni to other work that our faculty might be doing maybe in the popular press. So if there's a, so yeah, go to ideas to action and you'll be able to find everything. Ibis has at least one page there, um, where we can link you to some of these ideas that I've talked about, plus many more that our faculty are working on, um, jointly with Ibis research professionals. Um, I'd also say that Ed Freeman, if you're interested in his scholarship, like he has some very accessible stuff, um, on 
MIT Sloan's um, uh, uh, Thought Leadership Magazine. Um, he publishes a column there quarterly um, where you can read more about stake theory, stakeholder theory, and and uh, how he's thinking about it in a uh, in a sort of current events context, um, which is always really interesting for me to read um, how we think about stakeholders, you know, and immigration or stakeholders and um, another sort of interesting current event or the impeachment or something. I don't think he's published anything about that yet, but my guess is he will. Um, and so, so anyway, I'd say, yeah, start with ideas to action. That's where you can read about business as a social institution and see sort of how thoroughly it permeates this place. Well, Joey, thank you so much. This has been a, a tremendous conversation. I always learn something new from these podcasts. One of the benefits of uh, the job that I can say, I certainly learned several new things today. So um, thanks for the, taking the time. Thank you for having me, Brett. And that was my conversation with Joey Burton, Executive Director for Darden's Institute for Business and Society. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at Virginia. Until next time, thanks for listening.